Because of the following special programs, Whiz Kids will not be presented this evening, but will return next Saturday at this time on most of these stations. Live from Forgotten TV Studios, it's the Forgotten TV End of Year Special. Featuring Tim Conway, Paul Williams, Waylon Flowers and Madam, Rip Taylor, Bruce Valanche, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Paul Lind, The Captain and Tennille, Tony Orlando and Dawn, Captain Cool and the Kongs and featuring the Waylon Smithers Dancers. And now, your Forgotten TV podcast host, Chris Cooling. <laughs> well, I hope you indulged me with uh, a little bit of fun I had with that opening. Uh, welcome to the uh, Forgotten TV end of year special. It's out just a little bit late due to circumstances, as they say, that are beyond my control. Um, we had a great year with Forgotten TV, not quite as prolific as far as the podcast count as I had originally intended at the beginning of the year, but we did get uh, great shows on Logan's Run, a retrospective of the life of Gene Roddenberry and his 70s TV movies, Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and Strange New World as well as the definitive documentary on Tales of the Gold Monkey, um, as uh, it has been called online, the consideration of Future Cop, as well as Kolchak the Night Stalker, which wrapped up 2019. If uh, you missed any of those shows, uh, please go back and, uh, and check any of those out. Now, since the wrap of... Kolchak the Night Stalker. I have been working on WizKids and uh, have had, again, um, some uh, things that came up that have produced unintentional delays of, of this show. It is in production. There's a great interview with Bob Shane, the co-creator of WizKids that's in the can and will be included on the podcast. I've got input from people like Paul Chihara, who was the uh, music composer on the series, guest stars uh, Tammy Taylor and Robbie Rist, as well as interviews from actors that I will keep under wraps until that is in the can. Uh, so as not to jinx, uh, uh, any interview that might fall through, I don't want to promise something and not deliver it. So stay tuned for uh, further announcements as far as additional WizKid actors you will hear on Forgotten TV. And I do intend to post that by the end of January. In the meantime, I thought I would produce an end-of-year special, um, bring back a couple of segments, talk about some forgotten TV news, catch us up on the promised supplemental material from the last couple of podcasts, commemorate those that we've lost since the last time we did Forgotten TV Memorial, and end with a preview of the WizKids podcast, and make this podcast open to everyone, so you'll find this on the main feed. And at the end of the show, I'll talk about how, if you would like to continue hearing these supplemental podcasts, how you can support Forgotten TV and receive those in your podcast feed. Forgotten TV News. 
This is Will Robinson of the 24th Colonist Group. I'm making a record of this because it seems we're the first humans to try and turn a spaceship into a sailboat. Anchors away. I am the passenger. I see the stars come out of the sky. Sing la la. Is that a waterfall? Can we just get where we're going once without crashing? Oh. Everyone, strap in. Will, come on. Yes, it's the return of Lost in Space, the reimagining of the classic series that is now streaming on Netflix, starring Maxwell Jenkins as Will Robinson and Parker Posey as Dr. Smith. Join the Robinson family as they rejoin the Resolute space station and their further adventures in finding the robot and facing a new alien threat. Lost in Space Season 2, now streaming on Netflix. Wolfman's Got Nards! Yes, Wolfman's Got Nards, a documentary from Andre Gower exploring the Monster Squad's 30-year impact on film and its fan base from script to cult classic. When it was released in 1987, The Monster Squad was actually deemed a failure by critics and, according to box office, was a film that no one cared to see. But over the last three decades or so, word of mouth and its availability on home video has turned this sleeping hit into a cultural phenomenon. Wolfman's Got Nars explores the relationship a dedicated audience, including celebrities and filmmakers, has with the film The Monster Squad. This is a passion project from Andre Gower, and I was able to catch this showing at the local Alamo Drafthouse and actually meet Andre Gower after the movie. Andre just recently finished his Rock Until You Drop tour with the documentary, and we are currently waiting more information on whether this is going to be given another round of film showings or or news about an upcoming video or streaming release of this movie. So links to information about Wolfman's Got Nards is in the show notes. And I'll keep tabs on the upcoming release on this and we'll notify followers in the Forgotten TV, Facebook and Twitter feeds. While it's true we are in the downward spiral of home-packaged media, um, a few forgotten TV, classic TV movies are in production for a home video release. Come on. Come on, hippie. Come on, hippie. You crazy or something? Come on, hippie. Let's go. Let's go. Come Come on. Come on. Come on, hippie. Come on. Sam, come on. Get away from me, lousy freak. Come on, Come on! Come on! He just bought himself a long walk home. Yes, that's Pray for the Wildcats, the 1974 TV movie with Andy Griffith, William Shatner, Robert Reed, and Marjo Gortner, a group of executives that take a dirt bike or motorcycle trip across Baja, Mexico in the 70s. This is a classic TV movie that became 
infamous for Andy Griffith's portrayal of what turned out to be a psychotic uh, individual uh, that uh, the three other men were trapped with on their uh, motorcycle trip. Kino Lorber Studio Classics is putting this out on March 3rd on both DVD and Blu-ray. They have remastered it for uh, HD. Um, so they've taken the original film elements and uh, mastered it in 2K. So we're getting a full HD presentation. And my friend Amanda Reyes, as well as film historian and podcaster Bill Ackerman, will be providing an audio commentary on this disc release, making this one, at least for me, a must-buy. Yes, that's March 3rd from Kino Lorber. Pray for the Wildcats. Another classic 1970s movie of the week has come to Blu-ray courtesy the Warner Archive, 1973's Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, starring Kim Darby as housewife Sally Farnham, who gets plenty of alone time thanks to her husband's busy schedule. However, Sally finds out she's not alone in the house, for something sinister is sealed up beneath the fireplace. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is a classic TV movie that was considered on episode 15 of Forgotten TV. Warner Archive has done a new 4K scan of the original camera negative, which means we get an amazing HD version of this movie released on Blu-ray. The Blu-ray includes the audio commentary from the previously released 2011 DVD and a brand new commentary from Amanda Reyes from Made for TV Mayhem. So this is another uh, must-buy for fans of uh, either classic horror or classic TV movies. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, available from Warner Archive. And links to purchase all of these are right here in the show notes. And while we're on the subject of classic TV, check out 1981's Dark Room, now streaming free on the NBC Universal website. If you recall, in 1981, there was a TV writer's strike that delayed the start of the fall season for many shows. Instead of new shows coming out in September, many were delayed until October or November of that year. Such was the case with Dark Room, an ABC series that aired on Friday nights at 8 p.m. Central in late November. It only aired seven episodes, each containing more than one segment, so there were 16 total segments of Dark Room. And if you recall, the TV show The Phoenix eventually took that Friday night time slot on ABC. Now, Dark Room was a thriller anthology series in the style of The Twilight Zone or The Night Gallery. Episode segments were hosted by James Coburn and began with this narration. We're in a house. Maybe your own. Maybe one you've never seen before. You feel it. Something evil. You run, but there's no escape. Nowhere to turn. You feel something beckoning you. Drawing you into the darkness, to the terror that awaits you in the dark room. Check out Dark Room, available on the NBC Universal website. 
Oh, and if you like classic TV movies from the forgotten TV era of the 70s and 80s, check out Sam Pancake's podcast, The Monday Afternoon Movie. Sam is currently running through a consideration of TV movies of the 70s, curated by Amanda Reyes. So check out his podcast, which is linked in the show notes. And speaking of 70s TV horror, the trilogy of terror Zuni Doll became the most valuable prop in horror history when it sold recently for more than $200,000. It went up for sale at Profiles in History, which is an auction clearinghouse, which has uh, sold a number of classic uh, TV props over the years. If you recall, the Zuni fetish doll was featured in the segment Amelia from the Trilogy of Terror TV movie considered in Forgotten TV episode 15, and it recently sold for $217,600, which sets a new record as the previous record holder was the wooden axe used by Jack Nicholson in The Shining, which had sold for $211,700. Who could have foreseen that a 1975 TV movie would give us the most valuable horror prop ever sold? Let's just hope the new owner does not take off the protective necklace. We've got the touch. Coming this fall, Richie and his friends were just four normal kids until they built a supercomputer they used to solve crimes with the help of a friendly reporter. Now, things will never be the same for the Whiz Kids. Coming this fall on CBS Wednesdays. Future Cop Supplemental. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are late in the life of packaged media, movies and music that are packaged on discs for public sale. With the popularity of online streaming, buying content on discs has become or is becoming a niche market. The mass public has seemed to become apathetic about content in general. Uh, Many people now just watch whatever is available on Netflix, Hulu, or the streaming service they subscribe to. If you note, uh, The big push to Disney Plus now uh, shows that uh, many of the studios are interested in that ongoing uh, recurring streaming monthly revenue than releasing their movies and content in packaged form. In fact, big box stores have been reducing or eliminating packaged media departments for the last several years. Uh, Best Buy has dramatically reduced or eliminated in some stores uh, a CD or music department. And every year or two, many stores, as they do resets, they reduce the footprint of the movie sections. Target has also been in the news recently for reducing the footprint of the size of their packaged media departments. Prices on uh, widely available films have gone down. This has resulted in the devaluing of uh, movies and TV shows on Blu-ray and DVD. Movies even on Blu-ray now are routinely sold for under $5 in bargain bins at Walmart. But... uh, Even though this is the case, boutique studios like Mill Creek, uh, Shop Factory, uh, Kino Lorber, Criterion, and the Warner Archive 
continue to selectively produce content for smaller audiences with smaller production runs and things like on-demand production of discs. And the catch is you're not going to find these in stores. There's no store presence for these niche titles. Uh, these are online sales only. And uh, recently there was a podcast on the TV series Future Cop from 1977 and 1978. And uh, for Quite a while, Future Cop disappeared from TV and wasn't seen with the exception of the mid-90s sci-fi channel airings. But in 2016, Mill Creek Entertainment released it to DVD. Now, I had an ongoing conversation with Jeff Hain, who's the uh, vice president of content acquisition at Mill Creek. And uh, he let me know a few things about uh, how they obtained content and, and some of the uh, issues that they face when considering a property for release. They keep a running list of films and TV shows that they believe people would like to see on DVD or Blu-ray. And these are collected via uh, email requests or uh, people writing requests on Facebook pages. So uh, those of you who uh, are interested in getting specific TV shows released to DVD, uh, certainly make these titles known to the different uh, DVD studios that I just mentioned. So what Mill Creek does is takes these lists and uh, investigates to see if these properties are available to be licensed for packaged media. And he tells me that uh, the TV series Future Cop and Legend were offered to them by CBS. And if you look at Mill Creek's website, they have a history of doing well with titles that aren't necessarily major mainstream titles. This is for movies as well as TV shows. And they don't have to actually print a massive amount of copies to make something like this profitable. Unlike a major studio with a movie release, they have to print tens of thousands of copies at minimum to uh, be able to distribute this to stores and different warehouses like Amazon. Um, but uh, these niche titles, they only have to run uh, perhaps a few thousand copies at most for this to be profitable because they have the research of uh, what they believe the, the sales potential is on any particular title. And because these are done online, once the title sells out, they can do another print run of that title and not have to have a massive outlay of cash at the beginning to, to stockpile uh, tens of thousands of copies. Now, contrary to what I had thought on several series, he tells me that it's not often an issue with being able to locate surviving film or master tapes of these TV series to uh, be able to put them out onto DVD. But what is the biggest impediment to getting a previous television show released to DVD are music rights. Now, how problematic this is varies greatly from one series to another. Uh, TV show like WizKids, for example, there's only one episode I can detect that has any songs in it that would become problematic for a future release. There's uh, one episode, uh, The Return of the Big Rocker, where he sings cover versions of Great Balls of Fire, When a Man Loves a Woman, and Old Time Rock and Roll. 
Uh, but the first song, Great Balls of Fire, is actually instrumental in the plot as uh, Richie analyzes it with a computer and they play it several times. And it has a lot to do with how the, the story advances. So this might be problematic or at least incur an additional expense for producing a DVD or streaming release in the United States. In the 70s and 80s era, permission to use music was only obtained for broadcast TV and not future home video releases, certainly not for formats not even invented yet. Uh, These rights even sometimes had an expiration date, even for broadcast TV. Uh, Then to continue rerun syndication or do a home video release, rights have to be renegotiated with the current rights holders of each song heard in any particular episode of any TV series. And often the time, legal work, and the cost involved in doing this delays or prevents some shows from being released. Uh, Notable series that had this issue were WKRP in Cincinnati and Miami Vice. Many shows end up having original music replaced with something less expensive, as was done notably with Greatest American Hero, Quantum Leap, The Wonder Years, and Northern Exposure, uh, among a number of other shows. Uh, Even shows like Star Trek are occasionally affected when uh, in the episode City on the Edge of Forever, when uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy went back in time to the 1930s. In the original episode, the 1931 song Goodnight Sweetheart was heard And uh, a cover version was recorded by uh, a session musician. Now, they licensed the music at that time. However, when the 1980s came around and it came time to release the series on home media at the time, VHS and Laserdisc, well, a different studio owned the rights to Goodnight Sweetheart. And as such, they were not able to secure the license for this song. And so they had to compose a new score, which replaced that song on that particular Star Trek episode. So this type of thing happens far more often than many of us are aware of. Listen to this brief account from Hugh Wilson, creator of WKRP, as he tells us about the difficulties that he encountered in maintaining music rights for reruns of that series. There was a meeting, a music meeting, and the idea was that uh, when they played records at WKRP, they'd be what's called sound-alikes. It would sound like the Beatles, but it wouldn't be the Beatles. And I said, then, then we really can't do this show. We really must stop right here. Uh, that's not good. We got to play real records. So, well, that's going to cost money. And I said, no, we got to do that. And so we looked into it. And actually, I could buy what was called a needle down, where maybe, maybe I could get 17 seconds of Pink Floyd for three thousand dollars. And if I use like two two pops like that, that's six grand. I was able to get these real records. Uh, on and I think it made the show. But we, you know, uh, groups like Journey, we, 
we actually we couldn't afford the Stones or the Beatles or Michael Jackson, but we had everybody else, and this became a huge financial problem years later, because the show was just going great guns in syndication. Then the uh, rights to the music had to be renewed, and that three thousand dollar needle down now they wanted a hundred and three thousand dollars for it. So that was the end of WKRP syndication. But suddenly we just disappeared. 20th Century Fox acquired the MTM library. I think they were the third owner. And they decided that uh, they could make money selling the first season. But they, uh, and they brought, uh, they had Lonnie and Howard and Tim and me. Uh, we went to New York, went on the Today Show, did a bunch of interviews afterwards, but I could tell uh, DJs were calling in, and they said, hey, you, you know how badly these shows have been cut up. And I said, you know, not really. I hadn't looked. And they said, it's a mess. So I knew it wasn't going to sell, and it didn't. And so uh, 20th Century didn't go on with the second, third, or fourth year. When the Shout Factory they were able to keep most of the original music because their negotiation wasn't to play it on a cable or network. It was just on uh, CDs. And these guys also at the Shop Factory are old uh, music guys, and they knew how to make contracts, and they were interested. At 20th Century, you know, nobody really wanted to put any effort into it. Uh, so God bless the Shop Factory. So why is it that some of our classic shows are released in overseas markets, but not in the United States? Well, as I've come to find out, in Europe, uh, they handle music licensing on DVD and Blu-ray completely differently than they do here in the U.S. Rather than negotiating clearances on a case-by-case basis, uh, a DVD production studio will divide up a certain percentage of the profits of every DVD sold among the various artists who have songs in the show. It's very similar to the way that publishers get paid for the sale of recorded music, uh, which generates an automatic royalty to the songwriter. Um, Shout Factory occasionally has tried to push through this methodology of music licensing for titles on DVD in the United States. Unfortunately, it seems that there's just too much money involved for publishers and record labels in the way that the current system works. Other TV shows facing issues with music licensing include the uh, TV series Ed with Tom Cavanaugh and Malcolm in the Middle, which evidently is unlikely to be released at all because of music rights issues. Wednesday, the whiz kids don't know it, but they've helped a convict escape. And now reporter Max Gale is caught between some really bad criminals and... One million dollars. It's whiz kids Wednesday. Kolchak, the Night Stalker, Supplemental. In episode six of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, entitled Firefall, we got a glimpse of a pre-video game arcade, circa 1974. 
complete with pinball and fortune-telling machines, such as Zoltan, a 1969 coin-operated amusement produced by Profitron Incorporated of Milton, Massachusetts. Zoltan, if you'll recall, had an antique gilt fiberglass cabinet on a pedestal that contained the fortune-telling character with crystal ball. Players would insert a coin, select a birth month, and lift a phone receiver to hear a personalized message delivered from the wise Zoltan. This fortune-telling amusement began production in 1969 and was produced up to the early 1970s. Zoltan's crystal ball was lit by an eerie light. When one of the zodiac buttons was pushed, the crystal ball lit up brightly and illuminated Zoltan's intriguing face. Then after a pause, a somewhat mystical background music fades in, and Zoltan began speaking your fortune in a low voice with a heavy Hungarian accent. Zoltan usually starts out with, This is Zoltan speaking. Or, Greetings from Zoltan. And the predictions, which lasted about one minute and included things about your future, lucky numbers, or favorite colors, would continue. Here's a sample of one of Zoltan's fortunes. Greetings. The changes which you have been considering for some time seem to now be in order, but approach them in a conservative manner. They will bring you more joy and satisfaction than you think possible. You have the admiration and respect of those around you, so show a bit more appreciation in your personal dealings. This will pay large dividends. Romantic possibilities seem most favorable at this time for those of your sign, but beware complications. Think with your wits more than your heart. The color blue is strongly to be advised now, and a most fortunate number combination seems to be two, three, and four. Thank you. Now, Zoltan is not to be confused with Zoltar Speaks, seen in the 1988 Tom Hanks movie Big. Though the name is similar, the two fortune-telling machines are nothing alike in looks or in operation. You'll recall Zoltar Speaks actually had a full-size oak-style cabinet, not a partial cabinet on a pedestal like Zoltan. Zoltan was a project by two men with the same first name. Robert B. Bork and Robert Cottle. Robert Bork was an expert repairer of pinball machines, jukeboxes, and other amusement devices. He was the one that built Zoltan. The Zoltan amusement was popular mainly on the East Coast and was found on beachfronts and piers from New Hampshire to New Jersey. A third Robert, Mr. Bork's own son, helped build the Wizards, and no more than 50 or 60 were ever produced. Robert B. Bork died in 2003 at age 82. The other person that was involved in the production of Zoltan was Robert Cottle, who went by the name Bob. Who was Bob Cottle? Bob Cottle, or Captain Bob as he was known, in the 1950s was a local TV host in Hartford, Connecticut, and hosted the show called The Nature World of Captain Bob. 
Later, in 1953, the show moved to Boston, where it ran an additional 14 years. Then, in 1962, Captain Bob took over as host for the NBC show The Rough and Ready Show, which ran for an additional two years with him as host. Occasionally, this would even beat CBS's Captain Kangaroo in the morning ratings. The Rough and Ready Show! This portion of our show brought to you by Beech Nut. Yipes, stripes. It's fruit stripe. Captain Bob appeared for the last time on national TV in the 1964 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. What was Captain Bob's contribution to Zoltan? Not only did he design and sculpt the fiberglass head of Zoltan, it was Captain Bob that lent his voice to the wizard. Although Robert Cottle died in 1999 at age 78, his voice lives on as Zoltan the Fortune Teller. June Simon & Simon's Jameson Parker joins the Whiz Kids to track down a fiend selling deadly nerve gas. Who is it? It's a good question. Whiz Kids, Wednesday. Forgotten TV Memorial In researching Whiz Kids, I discovered one of the writers had died which received zero articles or obituaries in the press. Paul A. Magistretti died February 20, 2019, at age 83. His first industry credit was the Nightly Murders episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. That same year, he started working on Beretta, writing six episodes. He wrote and produced the unsold 1977 TV pilot, Martinelli, Outside Man. His two WizKids episodes were Return of the Big Rocker and Amen to Amon Ray. He is also credited with five episodes of Simon and Simon, as well as episodes of Helltown and MacGyver. Magistretti evidently led a very private life. Outside of these industry credits, I can find out virtually nothing else about this man, not even a picture. Paul Magistretti, dead at 83. According to Frankie Bylaws, section 105, subparagraph 10, upon reaching adulthood, Frankie males must purchase an apprenticeship from a suitable role model. I choose you. You want to be my apprentice? That's right. I want to be the first Frankie in Starfleet. Now, who do I see about getting a uniform? Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, passed away on September 21st. He was only 50 years old. Best remembered for his Star Trek contributions, he was also in the 1989 TV movie Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes, and appeared on The Wonder Years, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and Tales from the Crypt, as well as the 1991 film Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. He is survived by his wife, Melissa Longo. Groundbreaking actress and singer Diane Carroll died October 4th at age 84. 
The actress made news as the first black woman to have a lead role in a TV series in 1968 when she was cast as Julia. The series ran for three seasons and 86 episodes. She later had recurring or regular roles on The Colbys, Dynasty, A Different World, and White Collar. She also infamously was the star of Grandpa Itchy's Fantasy on the Star Wars Holiday Special. Please welcome Rip Taylor! Actor and comedian Rip Taylor died October 6th at age 88. Taylor was Sheldon the Sea Genie on the second season of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, appeared on the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, provided voices for Popeye and Son, The Addams Family, The Emperor's New School, and other animated shows. More often, though, he became known for appearing as himself in numerous game shows and in many TV and movie cameos that aren't even listed on his IMDb page. The two of you are going to go out together again tonight? Walter, did you ever think of asking me? Okay, Maud. Can I go out with Arthur tonight? (laughs) Actor Bill Macy died October 18th at age 97. You may remember him as the inventor of the OptiGrab on The Jerk from his later appearances on Seinfeld, but most likely as Walter Finley, long-suffering husband of B. Arthur's Maud on 137 episodes of that classic, at times controversial, sitcom. In his later years, he appeared on episodes of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Not knowing how to listen to podcasts, he was sent CD copies of them, and he was known for pulling strangers off the street, having them sit in his car with him and listen to himself over the car CD player. Rest in peace, Bill Macy. Thanks for all the laughs. Hello, citizens. Welcome. I'm doing quite super. Hi there, princess. Come on in. Oh, we do work on tips, okay? Okay. My name is Christopher Lloyd Dennis, and I play Superman. Christopher Dennis, known as the Hollywood Superman for impersonating the Man of Steel for nearly 30 years on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, died November 6th at age 52. Known for his resemblance to Christopher Reeve, Dennis made several appearances on Jimmy Kimmel Live, which records along the same stretch of road that Dennis worked for decades. He also appeared in the 2007 documentary, Confessions of a Superhero. What's the matter? Something go wrong? No. Okay, then. Just don't stand there in the doorway. Come on in. Listen to him. You listen, Mary. I did. Why do you think I brought him here? Tell them, Jim. Tell them, Jim. Tell him, Jim. Tell him, Jim. Tell him, Jim. Tell him, Jim. Michael J. Pollard died November 22nd at age 80. The actor played younger than his age for many years on shows like Lost in Space, Star Trek, and Superboy. He was also in the films Bonnie and Clyde, Tango and Cash, and Dick Tracy. 
In the 1960s, he was married to actress Beth Howland, Vera on TV's Alice, who he had a daughter with. He studied drama at the Actors Studio, along with a young Marilyn Monroe, and had a career in Hollywood for over 50 years. I was only there for a few months, but I saw an ad on the, uh, on the board for a producer's secretary, and I went and interviewed for it and got the job, and that was for Samuel A. Peoples, who was the producer-creator on a series called Overland Trail. I came up with an idea for it, and I went into Mr. Peoples' office and said, can I tell you a story? And he said, okay. And he didn't like what I pitched, but he said, you know, think more about that because, you know, he, he knew already that I liked to write, that I loved writing, that I loved the books and the scripts and everything. And he encouraged me. He said, think, well, think some more and, and uh, you know, you bring me a good story, I will buy it. And The Tall Man now was up and it was cast with uh, Barry Sullivan and Clue Gulliger, uh, Half Hour Western. And, of course, I was now reading scripts for that that Mr. Peoples or Frank Price were dictating to me or handing me to type up. And I said, I can do this. So I went into Mr. Peoples' office again and said, can I tell you a story? And he said, okay, if you tell me a good story, I will buy it. And uh, he said, all right, you have a writing assignment. So I was elated. I called my mother immediately. And... Um, then I sat down to write it using the format that I already knew from the scripts and outlines I had read. So I was, had educated myself in that area. And I turned in the story, which he liked well enough, assigned it to a writer for teleplay purposes. And I had my first screen credit and I became a member of the Writers Guild immediately. So the next time I came into his office and said, I have a story, he said, okay, tell me the story. Told him the story, he liked it. I went out and wrote that one. And the third time I came in, I said, now I want to do a teleplay. So when I finished the teleplay for that third one, now I had a full screenplay credit for myself, you know, story and teleplay by. And it was, at that time, Dorothy C. Fontana. Uh, my first six credits, basically, were Dorothy C. Fontana. Dorothy Fontana died December 2nd at age 80. Better known under her industry name as D.C. Fontana, she was involved with a number of forgotten TV productions that we have and yet will consider on the podcast, such as Logan's Run, The Fantastic Journey, The Sixth Sense, Star Trek The Animated Series, as well as writer of individual episodes of War of the Worlds, Star Trek The Next Generation, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, The Waltons, The Streets of San Francisco, Kung Fu, Land of the Lost, and others. Oh. <laughs> Wasn't so bad. Don't laugh at me. Cool off. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Actor Robert Walker Jr. died December 5th at age 79. Star Trek fans will likely recognize him from his role as Charlie X in that classic 1966 episode. Other vintage TV appearances were on the Time Tunnel, The Invaders, Marcus Welby, Cannon, Policewoman, The Six Million Dollar Man, Charlie's Angels, Chips, Simon and Simon, Dallas, and more. He also acted in the films Easy Rider, the War Wagon, and Beware the Blob. I'll have Quark send one of his minions with our basket. We'll have our picnic up there. Madam Ambassador. Oh, Waxana. I don't eat. 
This is not a real mouth. It is an approximation of one. I do not have an esophagus or a stomach or a digestive system. I am not like you. Every 16 hours, I turn into a liquid. I can swim. Rene Abergenois passed away December 8th at age 79 of metastatic lung cancer. The prolific character and voice actor for the last 50 years may be best remembered from three roles. First as Father John Mulcahy in the 1970 film MASH, as Clayton Endicott III on 135 episodes of Benson, and as the shape-shifting alien Odo on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He also provided voices for Archer, Avatar The Last Airbender, Justice League, Richie Rich, and a number of Disney animated productions. In the last couple decades, he embraced the fan community and regularly appeared at fan conventions and interacted with the public on social media. His last tweet from three days before his death was a quote that he shared, Life is too short to be lived badly. Paying off your electric guitar? Well, look at it this way. Now you're paying off a dirt bike. Philip McKeon, possibly best known from his role on 108 episodes of Alice, died December 10th at his Wimberley, Texas home after a long illness at age 55. McKeon played the role of Tommy Hyatt and literally grew up in front of us on the CBS sitcom from 1976 to 1985. Following that, he appeared in Chips, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and Amazing Stories. Forgotten TV doesn't usually note the deaths of music artists, but I was a big fan of Roxette in my 20s. The Swedish duo consisted of singer-songwriters Per Gessel and Marie Fredriksson who hit it big in the U.S. in 1988 with the Look Sharp album, featuring mega-hits The Look, Listen to Your Heart, and Dangerous, as well as the moderately successful Dressed for Success. As a result of their new popularity, Touchstone Pictures approached them about contributing a song for an upcoming movie. They chose to adapt a song previously unreleased in the U.S., The film Pretty Woman was released in 1990, and the song It Must Have Been Love hit Billboard's number one and became a top worldwide mega-hit. Marie had struggled with a brain cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment, as well as the after-effects on her health, since 2002. Blind in one eye and unable to read or write following the surgery, she returned to music and performing. And incredibly, a six-and-a-half-year worldwide tour of 256 performances. Marie Fredrickson died December 10th at age 61. Roxette now lives on in our memory and through the music left for us. Things will never be the same.
Saturday on the WizKids New Night, Richie taps into a TV ratings computer. If some people live and die by the ratings, could the WizKids be next? From Tron and War Games in the 80s, to Hackers in the 90s, and Mr. Robot today, computers and computer hacking has been an often used plot device featured in scores of movies and TV shows for nearly 40 years. But there was a time before computer hacking became an overused trope, usually with wildly unrealistic depictions. Back in 1983, a time when most people knew about home computers but didn't have one. And if you ask the average person what a modem was, you'd get a blank stare. That June, a certain movie by John Badham joined hits like Return of the Jedi and Superman 3 at the box office and brought together the concepts of home computer technology, hacking, and teenagers to the forefront, even startling President Reagan at the time. Shall we play a game? All right! War Games was the way the majority of people in the Western world were introduced to the concept of computer networking and acted as a commercial for home microcomputers. That hot and dry summer, as middle-class kids started asking their parents for a home computer for Christmas, the dam broke as news of real-life computer intrusions repeatedly hit the news. Action news. The FBI this afternoon confirmed it is investigating members of a Milwaukee area computer club for having successfully tapped in to the computer of the Nuclear Weapons Research Laboratory at Los Alamos, New Mexico. The people that engaged in these activities were often referred to as computer raiders or computer invaders in the news. But when the term hacker was used for the first time, by mainstream media on the cover of Newsweek, September 5, 1983, it seemed to stick, and to the general public, the term computer hacking became synonymous with computer crime. When Congress returned from summer recess, this was the topic of conversation. All of this media coverage that came on the heels of war games took place much to the consternation of a young writer-producer named Philip Daguerre, who had been working to bring his latest TV show to the air that fall. Join me on the next Forgotten TV for a very special presentation as I bring you the previously untold story of the production of the 1983 CBS series, WizKids, featuring interviews with co-creator Bob Shane and members of the cast input from crew and guest stars, never before heard stories that happened during production, original network teasers not heard in 36 years, and more. Coming soon to the Forgotten TV podcast feed, subscribe for free on Apple or Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, or your podcast app of choice. Well, I hope you enjoyed this supplemental podcast that catches us up on all of our segments and what's your appetite for the upcoming WizKids podcast. If you'd like to support Forgotten TV, there's a few ways you can do that. First is Patreon at patreon.com slash Forgotten TV. You can support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month and keep getting exclusive content, including those supplemental podcasts in your Patreon exclusive podcast feed. 
If you don't use Patreon, you can donate to Forgotten TV using PayPal at paypal.me slash Forgotten TV and do a one-time or set up a recurring donation. And as always, you can support Forgotten TV doing your regular Amazon shopping that costs you nothing extra. Simply click on any Amazon affiliate link located here in the show notes or on the social media for Forgotten TV. Don't forget to like Forgotten TV on Facebook, follow Forgotten TV on Twitter, and as always, links to everything are at the website Forgotten.tv. Until next time, Forgotten TV, out.